Welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus Podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns, and I'm the Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the May 2023 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the U.S. and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month's episode, we're focusing on litigation updates specific to the right to transition. Professor Leonard, happy Sapphire Gala Month, and thank, thank you for joining us. Really looking forward to uh, the Legal Gala at the end of May. It's going to be an exciting event. This month, we're starting off in the Seventh Circuit with a religious discrimination case. Can you take us through Klug versus Brownsburg Community School Corporation? Okay, this is a case we've seen before. I believe we reported on the district court decision when it came out. John Klug was a high school music teacher in the Brownsburg, Indiana Community School District. He uh, led the orchestra, I believe, in in addition to teaching music classes. And the district decided that their policy with respect to transgender students would be that parents could request that a transgender student's name in the school's database be changed and that the uh, student be addressed according to their preferred name and gender identity. And when this policy was made known to the, to the teachers, Mr. Klug objected. He said, based on his Christian beliefs, he believed that gender dysphoria is sinful and he had to use the first names consistent with the sex recorded at birth because to not do so would be encouraging sin. And he said, this is my religious belief, and I insist that you accommodate my religious belief by allowing me to continue to address transgender students consistent with their uh, sex as identified at birth. And the district said, well, no, you can't do that. Uh, We have obligations to the students under Title IX. We've been told by the education department that uh, there's a possibility of discrimination if we don't honor the gender identity of our students. So uh, they came to a compromise. This has been suggested in some other cases involving teachers who don't want to use somebody's preferred gender name and pronouns and honorifics, et cetera. The compromise was that he could address students using their last names only. No first names and presumably uh, avoiding pronouns when possible. But it turns out that it's, impossible for somebody to, uh, to do that consistently. And Mr. Klug was not doing it consistently. For one thing, the only students that he called only by their last name were the transgender students. So he was therefore singling them out. And in addition, he would use the last name, but he would say Ms. instead of Mr. or Mr. instead of Ms. And he, he would screw it up. And uh, it, this, this kind of compromise has been suggested by other teachers at times. And it never really works. And the uh, administration got complaints from students, uh, from parents, from other faculty about Mr. Klug's practices. And he was given an ultimatum. 
he was told, if you don't follow our policy, you either quit or we'll fire you. And he said, I can't. And so he was fired or his contract was not renewed. And so he, he sued claiming a violation of his rights under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Title VII says an employer may not discriminate based on religion. Religion is identified as both belief and practice. And the statute specifically requires accommodation. An employer must accommodate an employee's religious beliefs and practices unless it would oppose an undue burden, undue hardship on the employer. And an undue hardship uh, under current Supreme Court precedent is anything that's more than de minimis. Anything that causes more than a de minimis amount of uh, problem or expense to the employer. And the Supreme Court adopted that rule very early in the history of Title VII in the Hardison case. Now, the interesting side note on this is that the Supreme Court in April heard argument in a case that puts in question the reasonable accommodation requirement of the Hardison case. And the court has basically agreed to reconsider that. So sometime between now and the end of the term, which is either the end of June or early in July, the court will be announcing a decision that may change this issue, how, how the court deals with this issue. But for now, uh, certainly the district court, uh, when they issued its decision said, well, in terms of reasonable accommodation, the only accommodation that they seem to agree upon didn't work. And there is no other accommodation that will not impose an undue hardship because the school has a legitimate interest in avoiding Title IX liability and in addition, in providing a safe and welcoming educational environment for all its students, including its transgender students. And it's not only the transgender students who were complaining about what was going on in Klug's rehearsals and classes. They said, uh, we are feeling uncomfortable. Cisgender students are feeling uncomfortable because of the way Mr. Klug is dealing with this situation. It's creating tension in the classroom. It's a distraction. And uh, one transgender student even decided to quit being in the musical group because they didn't want to be there with, with Mr. Klug. So the district court said, no, the school was allowed to uh, dismiss him for failing to comply with its rules and goes to the Seventh Circuit. And the Seventh Circuit, in a decision announced uh, on April 7th, affirmed the judgment was unanimous, but not the opinion. The opinion was a two to one, interestingly. The, uh, the panel uh, was made up of, let's see, I've got it noted here. Uh, it was an all Republican appointed panel. Uh, Judge Alana Rovner uh, wrote for the court. She was appointed by President George H.W. Bush. And judges Amy St. Eve and Michael Brennan the other members of the panel were both appointed by President Trump. St. Eve signed on to the decision by uh, Judge Rovner, who affirmed the district court in full. Uh, Judge Brennan joined in the judgment, but not in the opinion, dissented as to the reasoning of the opinion. And uh, I mean, he, he had to agree with the judgment because under the current standard of the Supreme Court, uh, it's pretty clear that this would 
uh, allowing uh, Klug to address students according to their gender as identified by birth using what uh, transgender people refer to as their dead name, the former name that they no longer are using, calling someone Ms. or Mr. when they identify as the opposite. You know, this imposes an undue hardship on the school district because of its primary mission of providing equal educational opportunity to the students consistent with the requirements under Title IX. Now, the, the question of whether Title IX should be interpreted in line with the Bostock decision as covering gender identity is something that is argued in cases. But so far, most courts that have addressed the issue have said that the Bostock reasoning applies to Title IX as well, uh, both in Title IX cases and in Affordable Care Act cases, which we'll be talking about shortly when we get to our next, next uh, discussion. So, you know, in this area, everything is sort of up in the air. I mean, this Seventh Circuit decision seems to be correct. If they ask for on-bank review, I have a feeling that the circuit may put off deciding about on-bank review until they hear about the golf decision, the case that's pending uh, before the Supreme Court. So this is not necessarily the end of the line for Mr. Klug. He doesn't even necessarily have to apply for cert yet. He can, he can apply for consideration for on-bank review and that will put off the, the deadline for uh, appealing for cert. But he's represented by Alliance Defending Freedom. So you can bet they're gonna to try to appeal this somehow. They have uh, an agenda here of trying to cabin the Bostock decision as narrowly as possible and trying to get these cases under Title IX or under Title VII or whatever up to the Supreme Court. Uh, because they want to see maximum play for religious freedom. So that's the story on Klug. Thank you so much. As you had already hinted, our next case, we're going to be shifting from social transition to medical transition. Can you tell us about the updates from the Fourth Circuit? Okay, the Fourth Circuit dropped a surprise on everybody on April, actually it's uh, very early in April. They, uh, they announced that they're gonna go directly to on-bank review of two district court decisions from different districts, both dealing with the issue of gender-affirming care and the obligation of the state with respect to gender-affirming care under two different kinds of programs. The cases involved are Cadell versus Falwell out of North Carolina and Fain versus Crouch out of West Virginia. In both of those cases, district judges appointed by Democratic presidents were confronted with the question whether the state had violated uh, the Affordable Care Act and its non-discrimination requirements, as well as equal protection, in failing to cover gender-affirming care in a health care program that was provided. In the case of West Virginia, it was the state-operated uh, Medicaid system. In the case of North Carolina, it was the state insurance plan for public employees, including teachers and university staff and uh, direct employees of the state government. In both of those, there's a systematic exclusion of gender-affirming care. And the way the courts have analyzed this, the district courts, they say this is discrimination based on gender identity 
which violates the Equal Protection Clause and the non-discrimination requirements of the Affordable Care Act, which forbid discrimination on grounds, uh, they list various federal statutes. And one of them that they list is Title IX, which is sex discrimination. And both of these federal district judges found that denying gender affirming care means when you get right down to it in the operating room, refusing to do an operation that you would perform for someone if the operation was needed for something other than gender affirming care, but not if it was needed for gender affirming care. And if you look at the surgical procedures involved, and if you look at the medical procedures involved when we're talking about hormones, hormones are used for a variety of, of uh, diagnoses. One is in assistance to gender affirming care, but others are hormone deficiencies and uh, premature puberty. There, there are all kinds of medical conditions for which hormones are used and the surgical procedures uh, that are involved may also be relevant to other diagnoses than gender dysphoria. So the district courts look at this and they say, this is discrimination on its face. This is discrimination. And uh, they say that uh, this is the, these decisions depend on, for example, rejecting the normal party line that you hear from Republican legislators, that gender dysphoria is a socially constructed thing. It's not real, that uh, it's a psychological thing. It has nothing to do with anything to do with genetics or with medical care. Uh, it's not necessary that it's, it's enough to treat it with counseling, et cetera, et cetera. This is all rejected, of course, by these district judges who say, no, the evidence before us coming from established major medical professional associations is that gender dysphoria is a serious health condition and a treatment for it is gender affirming care and it's essential medical care. And so in both cases, the uh, decisions were appealed by the states to the Fourth Circuit, and rather than sending it to a three-judge panel now, uh, the uh, Court of Appeals is going directly to on-bank review. And this really makes sense because the way circuit courts function, the first three-judge panel to decide an issue creates a precedent for the circuit, unless it's reconsidered on-bank or reversed by the Supreme Court. That is, three-judge panels uh, subsequent three-judge panels aren't authorized to depart from circuit precedent. So now we have two appeals pending, from uh, one from West Virginia, one from North Carolina. They would probably end up before different panels, different three-judge panels. The first three-judge panel to rule will be setting the circuit precedent on this issue. And there already is a circuit precedent on the issue of Title IX covering gender identity discrimination as such, because we have the Grimm case, uh, which is already from many years ago. The Grimm case arose during the Obama administration. But ultimately in 2020, the, uh, the Fourth Circuit decided on the merits in the Grimm case that Title IX applies to the question of whether a transgender boy can use the boys' rooms at their public high school. And uh, on-bank review was denied in that case and cert was denied in that case. So that's a pretty firm Fourth Circuit precedent. But of course, uh, Trump got to appoint some folks to the Fourth Circuit. There were some retirements, there were some changes, but the Fourth Circuit still has a majority of judges 
appointed by democratic precedents. So not sure what's gonna happen here, but it, it seems to me likely that a majority of the circuit, and they never tell you why they're granting on back review. They, they just, it just, it's a one-liner, the opinion. It just says uh, that both cases are gonna be consolidated and on back review. So we're not gonna have the possibility that the second three-judge panel is gonna be bound by a decision by the first three-judge panel, when in fact it makes sense for the circuit to decide uh, right off the bat. And since this is an issue where the states are talking about, uh, you know, a federal intrusion on state decision-making, et cetera, the chances are good that whatever the on-bank panel decides, a cert petition or two cert petitions will be filed. Uh, so it seems very likely that we are seeing a case that eventually will end up in the Supreme Court. Can't say for certain, because after all, the Supreme Court denied certain the Grimm case. Uh, and it's not like we have a circuit split on this issue uh, until we see what happens here. So uh, this may end up up there. And Lambda Legal is in fact representing the plaintiffs in both cases. So this means Lambda Legal would end up litigating this one in the Supreme Court as well. We've spoken about the Fourth Circuit quite a bit in terms of these really cutting edge cases for the transgender community. Does it surprise you that the Fourth Circuit has been such a hotbed of litigation here? Well, not necessarily. I mean, you look at the, uh, you look at the uh, states in the Fourth Circuit and uh, these are, you know, well, some of them are former Confederate states. <laughs> You know, so uh, we're, we're talking about a place like North Carolina and Virginia and West Virginia. So uh, these are states that uh, sometimes go red, sometimes go, go blue. Right now, North Carolina has a Democratic governor and a uh, veto-proof Republican majority in the state legislature as, as to wit a recent uh, abortion law that went through uh, over the governor's veto. Uh, West Virginia has a Democratic senator, but it's Manchin who, you know, is frequently dissenting from what the Democratic Party in the Senate wants to do. Uh, and Virginia, of course, is a flip-flop state, goes back and forth between Democrat and Republican control in the legislature and the governorship. So these are, these are states that go either way. And so it's not surprising that uh, it's a hotbed of litigation on uh, these culture war issues like uh, transgender rights, which have been uh, weaponized now by the Republican Party as culture war issues. So we'll see what happens on this one. Uh, we're going to probably be reporting on this case again sometime in the future when we get an on-bank decision. I suspect you're correct there. So for our next case, we're moving back from talking about medical transition to social transition, but we're looking at it in a slightly different context rather than what's going on with teachers in schools, kind of more so what's going on between parents and children at home. Can you take us through the Veasley decision? Yeah, Vesely, or Veasley, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Uh, this is, you might say it's a domestic relations case, but it actually turned out to be a constitutional case. Uh, this is uh, Vesely versus Illinois School District 45. This involves a divorced couple, Brian and Susan. Brian and Susan 
have a child, a 12-year-old child, who uh, identified or was assigned male at birth, but came to identify as a girl and wanted to be treated as a girl at school, wanted to be able to dress as a girl, wanted to be able to groom as a girl, uh, choose a, a new name, et cetera, et cetera. And this was a school district uh, in Illinois. And in Illinois, we had some of the earliest bathroom cases. We had the Whitaker case in, in Illinois. Uh, so we have precedent in Illinois that school boards and school board attorneys are very familiar with. Uh, and uh, they were going to accommodate this girl. Uh, in fact, they had a general policy of accommodating transgender students in the, in the way of names and pronouns and everything. Uh, if uh, the parents contacted the school and authorized the change of the child's name on the school's official database, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then uh, you know, that was gonna be done. It was gonna be respected. Uh, but in this case, it wasn't a teacher who was objecting. It was a parent who was objecting. It was Brian. Uh, Susan had custody, uh, but Brian had a share of decision-making uh, authority still, even though Brian had moved to Florida. So Susan is living with the child in Illinois. A uh, child is only identified by initials in the opinion as is customary, AV. Uh, and Brian is living in Florida. And Brian found out that A.V. was being treated as a girl at school and he had not been notified. His permission had not been asked for. He was very upset. So he ran into federal district court seeking injunctive relief. He wanted a direction that the school not apply that policy to A.V. and in fact, not apply that policy at all. He said it's violating the rights of a parent, the constitutional rights of a parent to, for the school to participate in social transition of the child without the knowledge of the parent, the parent only finding out after the fact, probably through uh, exercise of his visitation rights. Uh, he finds out after the fact what's going on at the school. And he says, this is wrong. As a parent, I have a fundamental right to at least be informed and to, uh, for the school to seek my consent before doing this. Now, Susan is totally supportive of her transgender daughter and is perfectly happy with what the school is doing. In fact, Susan would have had to authorize the change of name on the school's database and uh, the authorization to use the pronouns that uh, the child wanted and to allow the child to dress the way the child wanted. So Brian goes running into court and he is relying almost exclusively on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and on Supreme Court decisions going back almost a century about parental rights, especially about parental rights with respect to the education of their children. And there are cases that, historic cases that people study in law school, the uh, Byer versus Nebraska, Paris versus Society of Sisters, you remember the cases. In the wake of World War I, Nebraska had a rule that uh, the German language could not be taught or used in the public schools. In Paris versus Society of Sisters, a state required that students go to public school. They didn't allow for uh, students to go to a Catholic school, uh, which that was the case uh, in Society of Sisters. 
And the Supreme Court in both cases said that this violated the fundamental right of the parents with respect to the care and the upbringing of their children, that the parents had a right to make some of these decisions with respect to education. And so it looked to, uh, to Brian evidently that he had an open shut case, but not in the Seventh Circuit. <laughs> and uh, this uh, arises in the Seventh Circuit in Illinois. There's a Seventh Circuit decision, Crowley versus McKinney. And Crowley versus McKinney deals with what do you do when you have divorced parents and they disagree about the educational issue involved? What do you do then? One parent wants to go in one direction, one parent wants to go in the other direction. Which direction does the school go in? And furthermore, they said, we think that those old Supreme Court cases are distinguishable and the Crowley uh, Court in fact distinguishes them. They say, it's up to the parents which school you send students to and on general issues like language and stuff like that. But when you get to specifics of how the school operates, it would be impossible for schools to operate if any individual parent could object to what's going on in the school. So, uh, you know, we see a problem with that. And uh, the federal district judge here, a Biden appointee for whom this is probably one of her very first opinions, Judge Lindsey C. Jenkins, appointed by President Biden, only took the bench recently. She had to work her way through these various precedents. After all, Supreme Court precedents take priority over Seventh Circuit precedents, but the Seventh Circuit itself had distinguished the Meyer Nebraska versus Nebraska and Paris versus Society of Sisters. So uh, Judge Jenkins says he has not established that his fundamental rights are violated here and granted summary judgment to the school district and to Susan, the mother. He, he sued both of them. He claimed there was a conspiracy between the school district and the mother to uh, transition to transition the daughter without his knowledge or approval. So he was uh, bringing a conspiracy theory, 14th Amendment due process theory. He also claimed a violation of the First Amendment to the Illinois Constitution as a supplemental claim. And Judge Jenkins said, well, no, I think under the Seventh Circuit precedents, which is bonding on me, and under the Supreme Court precedents, which I find distinguishable, this is a case where the school would be in a no-win situation. Brian wants to block the transition of the daughter. Susan wants the school to affirm the transition of the daughter. There's no fundamental right here on Brian's part. At best, this is a rational basis case and the school has a rational basis in honoring the wishes of Susan and has a potential Title IX liability if they don't do what, uh, what Susan and her daughter want in this case. Uh, there would be uh, the same kind of discrimination claim that you would potentially have in the Kluge case by the transgender students who are being misgendered in the classroom. So in this case, she grants summary judgment. Now, the question of what might happen with this case, if it's, if it's appealed, it seems that as of now, as of now, appeal would run into the Crowley decision in the Seventh Circuit. So appeal would probably be futile, but this might be another attempt eventually by a, a, a dissatisfied parent to get this issue of parental rights up to the Supreme Court. But 
I don't see this one as going that far. Uh, the judge granted summary judgment without prejudice and gave Brian a chance to file an amended complaint. And it seems that Brian was planning to because uh, he asked for an extension of time. Uh, the judge only gave him a, a week or two and he asked for extension of time. The judge extended it later into May. So it's possible that an amended complaint will be filed in this case. You'd mentioned the father residing in Florida. Florida has been coming up a lot this particular legislative season, especially around this idea of when there are interstate custody disputes where parents disagree on gender affirming care, whether the state has the right to kind of override that in the quote unquote interest of protecting the child. Do you want to take a few minutes to talk a little bit about that Florida legislation? And, well, my understanding is that uh, Governor DeSantis just recently signed the bill that prohibits gender affirming care. The state medical board at his direction had already said it's unprofessional conduct, but now they've put that into uh, legislation as part of a raft of bills that he signed. And, and this is uh, early in May, uh, but they were passing through the legislature during April. So uh, there are lots of arguments about federal preemption here, about Title IX, about the Equal Protection Clause. There's litigation that's going to be challenging all of these Florida enactments. Uh, but Florida is not alone in this. Other states are also going in this direction. And we are going to be flooded with litigation because of all these uh, laws that have been passed in various states limiting the rights of transgender people. There hasn't been much focus on LGBT rights except for the issue of curricula in the schools where we have a growing number of states that say, we don't want you to discuss anything having to do with human sexuality, basically of, of gay or transgender variety uh, in uh, K through 12 schools. So uh, the, Florida took the lead on that, but uh, the states are, are following as well. And uh, we'll see litigation about that. I agree. That really is gonna bring in a flood of litigation over the next year or so, especially we got through our cases very quickly today, so we definitely have time for something of note if you have anything up your sleeve. Yes, and this is also transgender, but this is international. Uh, we covered in the May issue an April 4th decision by the European Court of Human Rights in a case from Germany called OH and GH versus Germany. And this deals with the situation that in Germany, you can do gender transition without surgery. In fact, without even hormone treatments, all you need is to declare that you suffer from gender dysphoria and that you want to be recognized in the gender with which you identify, which means that you may be a transgender man who is physically capable of becoming pregnant and bearing a child. And in fact, we saw news reports about this in the United States back in the 1980s. I remember there was this sensational front page photograph of a very masculine looking bearded pregnant man. And it, it happens occasionally. Well, in this case, uh, we're talking about OH, uh, was born in 1982, uh, identified female as birth, lives in Berlin, officially changed his legal gender and name by the year 2011, but did not undertake hormone or surgical transition to the extent of not being able to become pregnant. And uh, OH wanted to have a child. 
wanted to have a child that was biologically related to him. Uh, as a transgender man, he can't generate sperm. So the only way he can have a child that's related to him is through fertilization of his eggs. And he got a sperm donor who agreed to waive parental rights. He became pregnant. He gave birth. And he asked that he be recorded as the father of the child on the birth certificate. And the local registry in Berlin said, what are you talking about? You're the mother. You gave birth to this child. This child was conceived with your egg, not your sperm. We're going to record this child that you are the father of this child. Uh, rather, that you're the mother of this child. See, I'm getting mixed up now. This is, a, this is a mixed up case in some ways. So what he wanted, what OH wanted, was that he would be listed as the father and that the mother would be left blank on the birth certificate. Well, how can the mother be left blank on a birth certificate when you define a mother as someone who gives birth to a child and as a person whose egg was fertilized to conceive that child? That's a mother, right? Well, but at the time that the egg was fertilized, he was legally a man. And there's a statute in Germany, uh, the Transsexual Name and Sex Act. In German, I can't pronounce the German word. It's one of these long multisyllabic German words, which is the name of the statute in German. But it's usually referred to just by the initials TNSA. And it says that the decision to recognize a transsexual person as belonging to the other sex had no bearing on the legal relationship between that person and his or her children. Now, the purpose of that was to say that if someone transitions, they remain the parent of the children they had before they transitioned. Certainly, that's what they were contemplating, that the transitioning would not cut off your parental status. But the way the German courts, and this was appealed all the way up to the German court system before it went to the European Court of Human Rights, the German courts took to the position that that means if you gave birth to the child, you're the child's mother. And that's how we record you, even if your legal status under the law is that you are a man. And it went to the European Court of Human Rights. And the question was whether that violates Articles 8 and 14 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Article 8 is the respect for private life. Article 14 is the anti-discrimination provision. And the court said, we don't see any discrimination here based on any category that we normally apply. So it really focuses on Article 8. They said only the Article 8 thing is admissible as an issue that we have to decide. Does this violate the respect for private life to list on the birth certificate of the child, GH, OH as the father, as opposed to OH as the mother? And we think it is within the margin of appreciation for the German state to decide to list G-O-H as the mother because O-H gave birth to the child. And they, they said uh, the civil service, the civil status registers in which the birth certificate is, is registered have a particular evidential function in the German legal system. And they thought that the German courts were correct in saying that GH's interests merged with the public's to some extent 
given his young age at the time of the application. Uh, G.H. is the child. The court said G.H. and similarly situated children have a right to know his or her origins and thus need accurate information regarding their birth parents. And they also approved the German court's conclusion that if O.H. is recorded as G.H.'s father, G.H.'s biological father could only be registered as the father of G.H. if G.H. contested the paternity of O.H. You know, what happens if later on the child wants to contest their paternity? They said uh, the legal connection of the child to his or her parents on the basis of their procreative functions enabled the child to be attached in a stable and unchanging manner to a mother and father who would not change, even in the event that the transgender parent applied for the annulment of the gender reassignment decision later on, which the high court in Germany had considered to be more than merely theoretical. That is evidently in Germany under their law, you could transition back if you become dissatisfied after you're, you've transitioned. Uh, so uh, OH had proposed to replace the terms mother and father in the registry with parent one and parent two. But the court said that would not protect the applicants from disclosure in as much as parent one would remain associated with the person who gave birth to the child. So uh, I thought it was notable, a notable decision. Obviously this is only a small number of cases, but when you consider a country with a large population, a tiny percentage is still more than a negligible number. So this is a, a situation that could recur and it would be interesting to see how American courts would deal with it uh, under the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, this was one chamber of the court. So presumably this could be appealed to a, a, a larger, a grand chamber of the court. So it may not even be totally final yet, but there's a logic to it. <laughs> Well, certainly a topic that is near and dear to my heart as a non-binary gestational parent. Thank you for bringing that to us in the of note this month. I know we're kind of coming up on the summer season. I do want to give us a little bit of a preview of some of the things that we might be chatting about this summer with 303 and all of the onslaught of state legislation that we've seen this semester. I think there's going to be a lot of litigation. Uh, we've, we've already seen uh, press releases from National Center for Lesbian Rights, from Lambda Legal, from the ACLU. They've got cases on file all over the country uh, attacking book bans, attacking anti-drag show statutes. Uh, there are a few states now who are sort of going in the retrograde position on birth certificates. You know, we had been making very good progress on being able to get new birth certificates issued for people after gender transition. Now we've got a few states that have absolutely forbidden it by statute. Recent developments, uh, sometimes uh, attempting to overrule court decisions. Uh, and to the extent the court decisions were based on constitutional grounds on equal protection, which several have been, how can a state legislature overrule a federal constitutional court decision? So we're gonna have all kinds of stuff happening uh, and it's gonna probably be happening pretty fast over the summer because in most of these cases, the plaintiffs are seeking temporary relief pending a final ruling on the merits. So we're gonna have decisions on preliminary injunctions. And so far, we've been doing pretty well on getting preliminary injunctions against some of these draconian laws. Uh, certainly the law is banning gender-affirming care for minors. 
especially those laws that say this isn't only prospective, that minors who are now taking hormones as part of gender affirming care have to be weaned off the hormones over a certain period of time because we're making it a criminal offense, for example, for a doctor to administer hormones for this purpose. Uh, so we're going to have a lot of litigation on that. Depending upon how 303 Creative turns out, the case involving the website designer who doesn't want to make a wedding websites for same-sex couples uh, in Colorado, of all states, the Masterpiece Cake Shop state, uh, depending how the Supreme Court decides that case, they could blow a big hole in anti-discrimination law when it comes to LGBT anti-discrimination protections. So we'll have to wait and see how that one goes. If they decided on a very narrow basis, it might not be too much of a disaster, although it would be a loss. But if they broadly take the view that any time a good or service has an expressive component to it, uh, under the First Amendment, someone can refuse to provide it for uh, a purpose for which they disapprove based on either their moral beliefs or their political beliefs or their religious beliefs. In, in uh, 303 Creative, it was the religious beliefs, but the only question upon which the Supreme Court granted cert was the First Amendment free speech question, not the free exercise question. So uh, it might end up being an hour decision. The question is, how do they distinguish between different kinds of, of goods and services? And is it only goods and services that directly on its face use language in rendering the service or in providing the good? Or is it anything that has symbolic nature? Uh, I mean, we've had litigation about floral arrangements. We've had litigation about wedding cakes. We've had litigation about wedding venues. I'm sure at some point, uh, someone who uh, makes custom wedding dresses is not gonna wanna make a wedding dress for a lesbian wedding. And we'll have another case and they'll say, well, it would be seen as approving and somehow or, or validating, which, goes against my religious beliefs. So uh, we'll have to see what happens with 303 Creative. That it's been taking this long. This was argued at the beginning of December. Uh, usually, uh, if something was argued at the beginning of December and we don't have an opinion by now, we would say, well, there's really contention on the court going back and forth with drafts and dissents and things. But the Supreme Court has been so late with decisions this term, they only really spilled out significant numbers of decisions for the past week or two. This is the latest that they've been in terms of uh, decisions in many, many decades. Uh, so 303 Creative could come out any time. As of now, the calendar for the court shows decision days, potential decision days every Thursday between now and the end of June. That's where they're gonna be issuing decisions, but they've been known to add decision days with very short notice when we're getting towards the end and they still have a lot of opinions to release. Uh, releasing five or six opinions in one day is not really very good because it makes it very difficult for the media to do a reasonable job of reporting on them. Since they usually, the major media outlets usually have one person or maybe two people who specialize in covering court decisions. Uh, so that puts a real pressure on it. The court in the past has sort of tried to dole them out so that the media coverage would be uh, less compressed. So we'll see what happens. There are a lot of unanswered questions over the next few months. Well, thank you for that thoughtful preview. And we will be there every step of the way to keep folks updated on what's happening. And I look forward to those conversations to come. Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you as always to our listeners. 
please continue to like, share, and find us on Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs.